So, if I were to ask you to describe your life using just one word, what word would you pick? Would it be something like fun? Hectic? Stressful? Overwhelming? How many of us could pick words like purposeful, meaningful, focused? Because many times our lives are like the plate spinning guy on Bozo's Circus. Do you remember that? How many of you were old enough to remember Bozo's Circus? I was actually amazed at this question in first service. How many of you have been to Bozo's Circus? Yeah, isn't that crazy? We were all like there together. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? But anyway, they, they invited this plate spinning guy to come all the time. He was there on the show all the time. And basically what he'd do is he'd grab a stick, he'd stick it down, and he'd put a plate on top of it and he'd start spinning it. And then he went to the next stick and he'd start spinning that plate. And then he went to the next stick and start spinning that plate. Remember that? And he like, you know, he's got 10 plates spinning all at the same time. But here was the problem. By the time he got to like plate number 10, plate number 1 was wobbling, right? And it was like the inertia had worn off, and so he had to run back to plate number 1 and start spinning that one again, and then plate number 4 started wobbling, and he'd get that one going, and he was just running like back and forth like a crazy person, trying to keep all of the plates spinning until finally he just couldn't keep it up anymore, and they all come crashing down, Right? What a great metaphor for my life. (laughs) Like that is it. When you are not living a life of purpose and focus and mission, man, it looks exactly like that. The philosopher Plato once said that the unexamined life isn't worth living. And so today, in the context of Recommitment Sunday, we're going to pop the hood, take a look, ask the tough questions. What's my purpose? What's my life all about? When you start peeling the layers of my life away and you're left with just this core, who am I really? If it all came to a screeching halt tonight, what would my life have been about? Well, believe it or not, it was uh, just a touch over a year ago that we as a church came together to make our commitments to the Believe campaign. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, I'll just fill you in about... um, About a year ago, we entered into a capital campaign that we knew was going to be a challenge because we were asking the people of Westridge to give above and beyond their regular giving an amount of money over a three-year period so that we could do some really, really sexy things around here like refinance the mortgage and expand the parking lot and bring the police detail in so we could actually all get home in time for dinner. Uh, But if you know Westridge at all, you know that we do not ask 
for money and we're not really good at it. And primarily it's because for us it's awkward because we, we genuinely believe that's between you and God. Right? I mean, if, if, if you give, it's because you have a desire to give. And it shouldn't be because I'm up here guilting you about that. And so we knew it was going to be challenging. Um, but we said, you know, let's put the kind of minimum goal out there of what we needed. It was like 750 grand. And we said, let's just pray like crazy that God can do his thing. And he did. Like, he showed up, and God did immeasurably more because 225 families of this church got together and committed more than a million dollars to be able to do some great things. And, And I really believe that the reason for the generosity of the people of Westridge is because your lives have been so impacted by the grace of God. It's a natural outlet to just say thanks, right? I mean, just to really thank God for what he's done for us. And then to have this church that we've all been blessed with that we really think is a, is a gift from God. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible thing. And there's a passage that I want to look at this morning that I think gets to the heart of what this believe thing is really all about. And it's, it's in Romans chapter 12. And the Apostle Paul is talking in verse 1 when he says, Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Now, when you read that, it's kind of like foreign language to me. I don't don't know about you, but I don't really connect into that verse. Like when I read that, I don't go, oh, that's like, you know, incredible for me that my life is to be a living sacrifice that's pleasing to God, that is a spiritual act of worship. You know, even stuff like, you know, you hear the word worship, and what's the first thing you think of? I mean, you think of us singing together on a Sunday morning, right? And, and worship is so much more than just that. I mean, worship at its core is about giving. And I'm not talking about just financially, it's about giving you. If, if I were to define worship, I would define it as that you adore something so much. That you love something so much. That you have this overwhelming desire to give yourself fully to that thing. And in the context of the Christian faith, it's that we adore God. We love God so much because of what he's done for us. That we want to give ourselves, we have this desire to give ourselves fully to him, and that's what worship is all about. And when you, you know, break it down a little bit, that word that he uses there, the Apostle Paul uses the word offer, to offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice, that's actually a word that is used in the Greek in the original language for bringing an offering before God. So if you can think about it in terms of like you are bringing your life as an offering before God. And the good news about that is, it means that just like when we talk about giving in the offering time on a Sunday morning, um, on, on the money side, it's the same way in our life. It's a voluntary act. Like It doesn't say, I command you to do it. It doesn't say, you have to do it. It doesn't say, God's going to grab your life. It says, I urge you, I plead with you, because he knows this is what is the right thing to do. And giving up your life to God 
is not something that is done out of a sense of obligation. It's something that we do because we want to do it. But why? Seriously, why would we want to give our life to a God that we've never seen before? Why wouldn't we want to just live our lives the way everybody else does, where we just live our life the way I want to live it? And not have to worry about giving up control to God. I want to control my life. Paul says that the motivation for giving our life to God, the reason that we would do it, can only be understood in the context of the mercy of God. When we fully get what God has done for us, when we catch a glimpse and take a taste of His grace, When we can experience the radical love of God in our lives, there is only one possible response. There is only one thing to do. We want to give back out of a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us, and so we want to offer up our lives. We want to live our lives in such a way that just says thanks for what God has done for us. Because I, I, I think that a lot of times we look at this Christianity thing all wrong. I think we tend to look at it as what's in it for me. Like what's my benefit? If I give my life to God, then what's he going to do for me? And the reality is that the Christian faith is designed way different than that. It's the, like, the opposite of that. It's designed in such a way that the more we give, the more we get in return. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about a quality of life, right? That the more that we give of ourselves, the more that we give ourselves to God, the more that we're living in such a way that we were living in the way that we were created by God from the very beginning to live. Worship happens every time I give myself fully to the purpose of God. Now, let me just stop there and say that when I'm talking about life's purpose, I'm going to make a distinction and say that I'm not talking about your role in life, right? We, we all have different roles at different stages of our lives. They change, but your life's purpose never does. Our roles never define us completely And you may say at one point in your life that I am a father or a mother. That's your role in life at the time. But then it may evolve into I am a grandfather or I am a grandmother at a different point in your life, right? You may say I am a dentist or I'm a plumber. But there may come a point where you retire. And then who are you then if that's what you've been about your whole life? That's a role that is part of your life, but that's not the mission of your life. That's not what makes your tick because your life is bigger than that. And it's more complex than just any one role. What it really comes down to is when I peel away the layers of my life and I get down to the core, to the essence of who I am, what am I left with? What am I giving my life for? There's a lot of options. You can give your life for your career or for your family. You can give your life for making money. 
building a bigger home or living for the next vacation. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. It's just that you were designed for so much more than just that. And if any one of those things are at the core of your being, then you need to know that you don't have enough glue to put it all back together when it all comes falling apart. You need a stronger core than that. You need a core that is unbreakable. And the question is, what will be that thing for you? What is the most important thing in my life? When you become a follower of Jesus, the core of our life changes, right? Our life's mission is what we're giving our life for. And if you're a Christian, it's simple. God wants all of you. He doesn't want just pieces and parts. He doesn't want just the mom part of you. He doesn't want just the career part of you. He doesn't want even just the church part of you. He wants the 24-7 you. He wants you when you're all in. And when we give ourselves fully to God like that, that is an active part of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Well, the passage goes on in verse 2, and it gives us a little more color on how we're to live it out when it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is for your life. Do you know how foreign this Christianity thing is to people who don't believe? I mean, the things that we strive for, the the things that we believe in, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, how absurd those things are to people who don't believe. I can't tell you the number of people in my business who when they figure out that, you know, I'm a closet pastor. They go, what are you doing? Like, what is that about? Why would you give your life for that? Why would you want to be involved in the church like that? Why, why would you give your money? Why would you give a ridiculous amount of money to you know, the church? You worked hard for that. And, but this is my sense of purpose and mission and My relationship with Jesus, it changes the way that I approach everything. And sometimes, I have to tell you, it doesn't make any sense. But I wouldn't, at the end of the day, trade it for anything. Because it's everything for me. We may know about this Christianity thing. We may show up at church on Sunday mornings. We might have been raised in the church. We might be able to quote a lot of nice scriptures. But if it ain't pumping through our veins, if it ain't giving us life and energy, then it ain't happening. And, and, we, and we're shocked and we say, you know, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel like I'm growing spiritually. But you know what it is. It's just that the Christianity thing has just become another spinning plate. 
that we're trying to keep together along with everything else. It isn't who we are. We can't do the Christianity thing part way. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, the only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. And the way I see it is there are like two real tragedies in life about what we give our life to or what we don't. One of them is to overcommit, overcommit to so many things that we're just half committed to like ten things that in the scheme of things don't amount to a hill of beans. And we have so many plates spinning that we don't have time to do anything meaningful in our life. We don't have time to do anything substantive because we're too busy running around keeping it all together. Or, the other one is that we really don't care. There's like this general apathy that sinks in at some point in our life, and we're just pretty content to go with the status quo and do life as usual. I think we need to get to a place where we can figure out the things in this life that really matter and get on with it and invest our life fully in it. And I've decided that for me, the stuff I have had to give up, the sacrifices I've made to follow Jesus, is far better than the alternative. Because I've tried it, and I'm telling you, Living a life with no sense of purpose or direction, that has like zero appeal to me. I really want to challenge you to stop and ask yourself, what am I living for? What's my purpose? Why has God led you to this church? What can you do to use me here? Can you imagine if you could actually pull off living out the rest of your days in the way that God designed you to live? Can you imagine how life-changing that would be? How radically different that would be? What this Believe campaign has been for a lot of us is an opportunity to come face to face with our own beliefs and to challenge our faith to the point of risking something. Because how often do we actually have to sacrifice something? And so at the end of this campaign, we hope that it's all about how we have grown spiritually. How this whole thing is between us and God. And let me tell you, what has inspired me most about this Believe campaign over the last year is that through the entire process, we never heard one complaint. We didn't hear the, man, all the church wants is my money. We didn't hear the, wow, you guys ask for money all the time. We didn't get one negative comment. And I think it's because when you talk to people 
who have made commitments, you can just tell they gave because they wanted to. Nobody was over here guilting anybody. They gave out of a sense of joy, and everybody that I talk to has a story about how and why they gave out of a genuine sense of gratitude for what God has done for them, and it's been such a beautiful thing. So every promise that we made a year ago regarding the Believe campaign, we've kept, including this one. And that is when I stood up here a year ago and I said, if you'll take a risk and you'll try this on for a year and go fully in for a year and make a commitment, at the end of the year, you can evaluate that. And if you don't feel blessed by having made that commitment, if you don't feel like that was the right thing to do or you were in over your skis or whatever it is, you can back that commitment down, you can cancel it, you can do whatever you need to do. This is that time that we promised on Recommitment Sunday that you can back that down if that's what you feel like you wanted to do. I just appreciate the fact that you took a risk and you tried it on for a year, and I'm grateful for that. And just know, nobody's going to be calling you up saying, I can't believe you, like, cancel that commitment. There's none of that. It's just between you and God. It just may mean that you're not at that place where that works for you right now. The... Hope is that you feel so blessed by the commitment that you've made and what you've experienced over the last year that you will continue on with that commitment. And so we'll ask in that recommitment card that you have in your program that you'll just put on there that, yep, we can continue on with the commitment that we made 12 months ago. We also said that if you were willing to take a risk and try it on, that if you felt really blessed a year later for what God has done for you, you'd have the opportunity to to increase your commitment. And that's what my wife and I are actually going to do today. We feel incredibly blessed by what's happened here over the last 12 months, and man, we're fully in, and we're increasing that. If you're visiting with us, we have absolutely no expectation for you to do anything. If Westridge has become your church home since the Believe campaign, and you didn't have a chance to participate, and you want to enter a new commitment, you can do that today as well. But we're going to take a minute in a few minutes and decide about what it is prayerfully that you want to do. And during this next song that they're going to do, I'll come back and lead us in a time of recommitment. But before that, I just want to tell you a a story just in a way to close. If you're visiting with us, you may not know that I'm actually just a volunteer here. I don't take any money and I'm really a real estate developer, one of those evil guys. And I'm working on developing a building down in Houston in the downtown area, and it's being designed by a pretty well-known architect down there. And just a short distance from the site that I'm working on is probably one of the most beautiful modern-day cathedrals that I've ever seen. It's called Sacred Heart. It's in Houston. You can actually look it up. And um, it's actually designed by the same architect that's working on the building that I'm developing. And I, we had some downtime one day in a meeting, and so I asked the architect to tell me a little bit about the cathedral. And he talked about, you know, the design of it and some of the thinking that went into designing this cathedral and how beautiful it was and all the great detail and talked about the construction process and how it all came together. But as he was telling the story, it was interesting. 
because he kept saying that the construction supervisor on the job wasn't a believer. And he kind of became a wet blanket for, like, the whole project. He would just kind of make complaints under his breath, and he'd make sarcastic comments uh, about the fact that he had to, like, be working on this building when he could have been on this church, when he could have been working on one of the beautiful high-rises downtown. And he said it really just kind of detracted from the beauty of the project all the way through. But, he said... Something happened as they were putting the finishing touches on the church. The church had ordered this crucifix that was like 10 feet high that would hang over the altar. And they ordered it from an artist over in Italy who over there hand-carved the whole thing and had it shipped from Italy over to the United States, and the the architect just said it was probably one of the most haunting pieces of art he's ever laid eyes on. Just beautiful. However, when the crucifix arrived on site and they opened up the crate, they saw those two words that every dad hates on Christmas Eve night. You know those two? Assembly required. Right? So can you believe this handcrafted piece of art coming from Italy had to actually be put together? I mean, they had to assemble Jesus, right? So they go to uncrate it, and there were the two pieces of the cross laying on top, and so they were able to put those together relatively easily. But the body of Jesus came in a wooden box that the architect described as being much like a coffin. And so after they put the cross together and they very carefully take the body of Jesus out of the wood box and they go to attach him to the cross, but there was nothing there to attach him to. And they couldn't figure out how they're going to attach Jesus to the cross. And they look at the crate, and the only thing left in the crate are just three metal spikes. And so the workers are kind of scratching their head, trying to figure out what it is that they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to attach Jesus to this cross, when all of a sudden, they get it. Like, they understand that the artist's intention is for somebody to take those metal spikes and to drill them through the hands and feet of Jesus in order to attach him to the cross. And it said that all the workers freaked out. Like, nobody would even come near it. They all, like, took a step back, looking around at each other, like Mikey's brothers, like, I'm not going to do it, you do it. I'm not going to do it, you do it. Well, this construction supervisor, seeing that nobody in his crew was going to do it, the supervisor grabs the spikes in like this really gris manner and he's completely disgusted by the weakness of his workers and he says, I'll do it. And so he jumps up on the ladder and he begins to nail the hands and feet of the sculpture of Jesus to the cross. The architect said that as he does the place just gets eerily quiet. And all you can hear 
is the pounding of the hammer against the metal spike over and over and over again. Until all of a sudden, the supervisor just stops. And to everybody's amazement, he starts crying. He takes a minute, he regains his composure, he wipes the tears away, and he is like absolutely determined to finish this quickly. And so he starts pounding all the harder into the metal spike. But every time he hits it harder, he cries harder, uncontrollably shaking and just sobbing. Nobody could believe it. So finally, when he gets done, he walks down off the ladder. He drops the hammer at his side and walks out the church. Sometime later, the architect was able to catch up with the supervisor and ask him about that moment. And he said all he was willing to really say was that it was the oddest thing. Because as he began to hammer those nails, it's like it all came to life for him and it all became so real. He said, I was just overrun with emotion and just moved to the core in this moment. And then he said, I don't think I'll ever be the same. I hear that story and I think to myself, how many times have I been this close to Jesus where I could just reach out and touch him and yet I remain unchanged? Look, I've been rubbing shoulders with Jesus all my life. I was born in the nursery of the church. no matter how close I've gotten to him through the years, I've remained unmoved. I am still very capable of reducing Jesus to this mythical character from a fictional story and in essence reducing my life to just a bunch of spinning plates. What will it take for me to stop long enough just to look him in the eyes and to know he's real? To know that all of this, what we do here, it's real. What will it take for me to realize that every day that I wake up, I am standing in the presence of the one who gave his life for me. And that every time I mess up, every time I walk away, every time I think that I can do it on my own, it's me that's standing there with the hammer, driving the nail into his hands. I'm the one driving the nail into his feet every single time I walk away. want to live differently. You know? 
My greatest fear is to have a life that is empty and meaningless. I don't want to come to the end and regret all that I didn't do. When they peel away the layers of my life and get down to the core of who I am, all I want them to see is Jesus. What is it that holds you back? What stops you from going all in? What is it that prevents you from being so moved by this God who loves you beyond belief and all he wants you to do is to love him back? I have an amazing capacity to screw up my life and to mess up over and over again, but I can tell you this. I have never found anything other than Jesus that's worth giving up everything for.